You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It's hard to believe that this is our last class in Ephesians. It has gone way too fast, even in the midst of COVID, and it's been a great joy. And as we come to this last bit, I can't help but feel like I'm leaving an old friend behind. I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope that God has used this series Uh, to open your eyes to his greatness and goodness and his majesty and what he's done to save you in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit, the very spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells within you and the implications of this spirit-filled life uh, in uh, your life as a believer and your pilgrimage on uh, this earthly way. And we come to the final part of Ephesians chapter 6, a famous passage putting on the whole armor of God. And as we approach God's word, let's pray. Oh, Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, It truly is uh, a balm to our souls. And you speak to it, uh, speak through it even today uh, to us whose eyes have been opened uh, by the power of your spirit and have taken hold of the goodness of your grace. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you would bless us even this morning as we come to your word and open our eyes uh, to understand what it means to put on the whole armor of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Formerly, we spoke of the Christian believer being filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, This uh, is what Paul spends a lot of time talking about in the tail end of chapter 4 and all throughout chapter 5 and even chapter 6. And to be filled with the Spirit of God is not just something uh, that happens. We're not animists. We don't believe that that God inhabits everything in the sense that uh, there's just as much God in that tree as there is in me, or there's just as much God in the unbeliever as there is in the believer. Indeed, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, only takes up residence in the life of of the believer, the one who is a member of Christ's flock. If you want to go back and look in John's gospel, uh, I won't look at it now, but uh, it's very interesting the way that Jesus puts that. He doesn't say that, that you belong to my flock because you have believed, but you have believed because you're a part of my flock. Do you notice that distinction? And so those whom God has called, as Ephesians 1 talks about, those whom he has predestined, those whom he's laid his hand upon and said, you're my sheep, you belong to me, those he's given power to become children of God. And when we take hold of that faith, his spirit dwells within us, or actually his spirit is already working within us that enables us to come to him in faith. And why does this happen? The Spirit takes up residence within us so that we might be made more like Jesus and that we might live lives to the glory of his name, that we might be gospel-saturated people. And Paul gives us examples of means by which the Spirit makes us more like Jesus. And they are human relationships. The examples that Paul uses are the church, marriage, parents and children, and commercial relationships. 
these relationships in particular have a sanctifying effect in that they call for submission. As he talks about in Ephesians 5, the work of sanctification of God's work on our lives that's the result of, the, of, of being immersed in the gospel in the same way that it's the same gospel that sanctifies us uh, it's this, the same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sanctifies us. But one of the ways in which God does this is by bringing about relationships in our lives that show us how much more we need Jesus. And these relationships that Paul mentions in Ephesians 5 and 6 all call for the same thing, submission. Because ultimately that is what sanctification is. It's a submission. It's a presenting yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Not just saying, hey God, I'm ready to get to work, but God, I am nothing and have nothing apart from you. Everything that I am and everything that I have is directly attributable to you. You are my everything. And apart from you, I'm nothing. Uh, one of you emailed me and said, well, isn't this exactly what uh, Paul is talking about in his letter to the Philippians chapter 2? And so you can flip over there. Uh, the, it's the next page over, page 980. And let's hear what Paul says. Beginning with verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's been given to you, who though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so for those of us who have a problem with submission well, Jesus didn't have a problem with submission, but in fact emptied himself and took on human form in order to die for us on our behalf. That's what submission looks like and is ours in Christ Jesus. And because these relationships have a sanctifying effect, you can't be married to someone without them sanctifying, iron sharpening iron, Washing one another with the word. Or in children and parents, how that relationship works out. If you've never learned how to say sorry to your child, you better start now. And in commercial relationships, what do your employees think of you and what do you think of them? Or what do you think of your employer? And if none of those categories apply to you, go back earlier to when Paul talks about the relationships that we have within the life of the church, and the Bible never envisions the Christian life to be lived alone unless you're on a desert island. So if you're one of those people who thinks my faith is very private, I'm never going to talk to anybody about it. In fact, when I come to church, I don't want anyone to talk to me. I'm going to sit in my pew, and then I'll give Andrew a handshake on the way out and say, nice sermon, whether I mean it or not, and I'll never see another Christian until the next Sunday, and that's all I'll do is see them. Paul says, I'm not sure that you're a believer. Or if you are, you've got a real blind spot. And I promise you, 
that you're not experiencing the kind of sanctification that is needed. In fact, you might be living your Christian life that way because you don't want to change. It's none of their business. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. And so it's best if I just keep myself isolated from other people and maybe even go so far as to say to not love other people. Because as C.S. Lewis said, if you never want to hurt, and by that means see the need for change or experience change in your life, then never love anybody. Now, of course, God is not going to leave you to yourself, and it's probably a great struggle. And so when I encourage people to speak to one another on Sunday morning as if it's a family gathering rather than a scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, they, they're repulsed by that, some people. I don't want to do that. That's not what I've, what I've come here for. That defensiveness may be an indicator that, that God's working on your heart, and if you really stopped and thought about it, you would think, yeah, I probably should do that, but I don't want to do it. And so these relationships help us to understand that God doesn't leave us to ourselves. These relationships have a sanctifying effect And they tend to show us our sinfulness, and there is resistance. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7. It's not just the struggle between sin of the very thing that I want to do, uh, I find myself incapable of doing, and the thing I don't want to do is the very thing that I find myself doing. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I mean, part of it has to do with the relationships that we're in as well, and how God works and speaks through them. But our natural posture is to resist sanctification. It's to resist God's work on our life. It's not just a struggle of the flesh, but a spiritual struggle. The struggle of the flesh is a spiritual one, but it's much wider than that and goes beyond even the borders of our hearts. And so it's no small wonder that Paul transitions from those relationships into a discussion of spiritual warfare. And so let's read what Paul has to say. This is Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with the 10th verse. Uh, You should have your Bibles open to page 979 if you have an Advent leather-bound Bible. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as, for sho- and as shoes for, the, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Spiritual warfare, it's real. But how many of you as you read through this passage in Ephesians chapter 6 about the armor of God and realize that, it's, that he's referring to it in the context of the relationships that he's just spoken of. Paul isn't necessarily talking about those particular times in your life where you know that you're about to go off and do battle. You're encountering a particular difficulty and you say, spiritual warfare. And it may indeed be spiritual warfare. But it's not this neat and pretty battlefield as it was, you know, leading up through the ages where armies, you know, this army is this color uniform and this army has this color uniform and you can see one another and you all march out to the battlefield and you say, now we're going to fight. And yet so many of us have an understanding of spiritual warfare with that in mind. It's predictable. It's manageable. We're made aware of it. But Paul talks about this in the context of those relationships. Did you ever think that the relationships that define the day in, day out of your existence are actually the battlefields for spiritual warfare? Because frankly, that's where the spiritual warfare matters. What are the most important relationships in your life? Well, of course, first and foremost, your relationship with God, and Satan's going to do everything in his power to take that down. But next to that, your relationship to other Christians, your relationship to your wife or husband, your relationship to your children, and your commercial relationships. Spiritual warfare is not neat and pretty, it's guerrilla. And that is where the warfare breaks out, in the midst of those relationships. It doesn't mean that there aren't particular times in the springtime where kings go off to war, where you you know that you're going to need to suit up. But for the Christian, the suit of armor doesn't rest in the armory and only put on when you think, I'm putting my war clothes on and I'm going to battle. But every single day, the Christian believer puts on the armor of God. He or she suits up. It's not just when you're acutely aware of the trials ahead, but the battle that wages every day within your heart, within your church, within your marriage, within your family, and within your work relationships. This is what God, through Paul, wants to leave with you. Paul has come full circle in his argument when he says in verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Turn back to chapter 1. Remember chapter 1? Chapter 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? 
Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. This is the might that he's talking about back in chapter 1. Where is your strength? It's in the might of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is this possible? By us putting him on by faith. And this might, verse 20, is that he worked in Christ, that is God, when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand and all heavenly, in the heavenly places. That's the might that we've been giving, given. And so we put on the armor of God by faith. And it's not so much, I'm going out to do battle and all of the terrible uh, ways in which David fighting Goliath has been illustrated. Uh, that, that's a terrible, you know, I heard a guy preach one time and say, you know, Goli- David went out to face Goliath and he took with him five stones. And what are the five stones in your life that you can use to slay the giant? That's crazy talk. Because the whole point of the story is who slew Goliath? God. God slew Goliath. Remember David, they tried to put Saul's armor on him and it was a case of dress up. You know, a a young boy putting on the adult clothing and kind of, the poor kid couldn't even move and, you know, enough of this. If I'm going out in the strength of the Lord, I'm not going out in man-made strength. I'm going out into the strength of God. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And it's possible to put on the armor of God when your life is hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not just simply things that I'm going to put this on, I'm going to put this, oh rats, I forgot my helmet. But actually what Paul is talking about is what is your life apart from Christ? You're in him and he's in you. The relationship is all important, and if you're not in Jesus Christ, you're going to become over, well, one, if you're not in Jesus Christ, the battle's already been lost, you're fighting for the other side. That's what he talks about earlier in Ephesians. But if you're not living your life in Christ, if you're not taking advantage of the means of grace, you're going to falter on the battlefield, which is lived out every single day. The devil doesn't take a break. Remember that? When you were kids growing up, we'd always play battle or war, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, every stick became a gun. And, we would, and, and just when you would get cornered by your brothers or the neighbors or whoever, you'd, you'd time out. Time out. Well, there's no time out in real war, and there's certainly no time out when it comes to spiritual warfare. And let there be no mistaking who it is that we're up against. We're up against the devil himself. He's a real personal entity. He's not the opposite of God. We're not dualist. We don't look at the world and say, well, anything good that happens, that must be God, and everything that bad that happens, that must be from the devil. And nor do we think that, that nor are we dualist in the sense that the devil is the equal opposite of God. God is omnipresent, the devil is not. God is omnipotent, the devil is not. God is omniscient, the devil is not. And yet, 
The devil is very crafty. He's the roaring lion prowling about to seek whom he might devour. And he has an army at his disposal. Demons. We have no problem talking about guardian angels. And for those of you from, who have gone to Suwannee, you know, Suwannee, you can, you've got your guardian angel that goes with you and you tap the roof of your car. But have you ever considered that maybe you have your own demon? Uh, who's seeking to dissuade you from the truth of God? This is what C.S. Lewis was trying to get at in the screw tape letters. And I just want to say as a footnote, there is a propensity among some Christians to become overly obsessed with this and to kind of get into this in a way that is really unhelpful, that you begin to so fixate on the means of throwing off the devil and thwarting his, his plans uh, against you, that you begin to lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The Treasury Department, when they, if you were ever, I've, I've actually talked to one of these guys in the counterfeit department just to confirm that this is true. And uh, do you know how the counterfeit department within the United States Treasury determines how they train up their people to tell if a note is counterfeit or not. They spend very little time looking at fake notes. But they know the real thing so well that they can see the counterfeit almost immediately. And in the same way, don't spend your time looking at all the counterfeit notes. Know the real thing so well that you can discern that's the voice of the enemy. This is a scheme of the devil. This is not of God. Well, Paul says that we need to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But then he says something really interesting, because this is lost on us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there's a battle raging in the heavenly places in the spiritual realm right now. And our battle isn't against flesh and blood. So the problem is not necessarily well if those people would just get themselves straight then we'll be fine. And so often we villainize other people in a way that we're cautioned against here in God's word. Those people are not our enemies. The devil is our enemy. And it very well may be that the people who are on the other side of something, if that side is ungodly, are in fact on the side of the devil even if they say that they're Christians. I mean, I think about this in the life of Christianity today. And I'm not talking about issues upon which we can agree to disagree on. I'm talking about the very truth of God's word and salvation being at stake. And encountering people who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that. And not only that, I'm going to actively work to perpetuate this lie and have it sort of weasel its way into the congregation. I don't think any of those people would readily admit, hey, you know what, I'm on the devil's side. They're not going to do that, but they've been duped. And so even though we don't fight against them, in some real sense, they are footmen and ground soldiers 
of the devil's army. Some are volunteers. There may be some people out there that are saying, I'm here to wreck you, and I know that I'm in opposition to God. But so many are conscripted, and they've fallen prey to falsehood and error, and they've decided to follow the prince of this air rather than the king of kings and lord of lords. And we see the cosmic struggle played out before us. Have you ever encountered somebody like that where you think, my goodness, it's almost as if they're possessed? Now, they may not be possessed by a demon, but they are certainly under the influence of something demonic. And for us to deny that, Paul says, is foolishness. It's absolute foolishness to sit back and think that this army, which is loaded for bear and is trained to do this work, is just going to say, you know what, we're just going to leave you alone. Because the most dangerous person to Satan is someone who was part of the, uh, part of the, the Lord's army, who was entered into his service. And at that point, the devil can't get at you A demon cannot inhabit you. This is a whole other story for another time, and we can talk about that if we ever get around to the miracles of Jesus as to why a demon cannot inhabit the life of a Christian, although I think that a demon can influence the life of a Christian, benounced or unbeknownst. But if you're in God's army, if you're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, They've lost you, and so they're going to commit themselves to making sure that you don't take anybody else with you. And the wiles of the devil are are just, he's a wily guy. You know, we do a great disservice by depicting Satan, which means accuser. That's that's really something that he does. uh, As this sort of red horn guy with a pitchfork. That's frightening to anybody. I mean, who's going to look at Satan if he's really like that and say, man, my kind of guy. I'd like to work for him. And, And if you saw someone coming up to you that looked that way, you would run in the other direction, even if you were sympathetic to what they might have to say. But no, the Bible tells us that Satan, formerly Lucifer, was an angel of light. The Bible depicts the devil as actually a really attractive being. Not a human, but an angelic being. And so it would be more biblical if you understood Satan as someone who is incredibly charismatic, convincing, maybe even perceived as godly and right? I mean, wasn't that his M.O. in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say? He knows his Bible better than you and I do. No, he's attractive. And he sucks people into his web because he is the father of lies. Jesus, all this can be yours. Just throw yourself down from the temple. The angels are going to save you anyway. Just do it. Tell these stones to to turn into bread. For it is written. 
What makes the devil so tempting is that he's tempting. If he were harsh, unattractive, it's not much of a temptation. But there you have it. So for the Christian, we're not looking for a fight, but expect it to come to you. Because your heart, when you become a Christian, becomes a battlefield. And most of us are naive to that. And so if we're to stand against the schemes of the devil, what are we to do? We're to put on the full armor of God. He repeats himself in verse 13. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's our, do you notice that's our, our job is not attack, charge. Our job is to stand firm for the battle belongs to the Lord. And how do we stand? Well, we stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. All right, so now we're going through the wardrobe. There's an overlap here between Old Testament battle wear and, and Roman battle wear. And you can go study that a little bit more. It doesn't uh, help all that much because he explains what each item is. The belt of truth fastened. What's holding it all together? The belt of truth. Right? The truth that you're standing in the right of God's word, that you're assured, that you're secure in him. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness. We talk about this. The best thing I ever did do was to take off my old coat and to put on the new. You've put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life is hidden in him. He's the rock of ages cleft for you in which you hide yourself. And I'm going to go through these because we're uh, running down on time. I could do a whole year on this. But, but I want you to know, so being secured up in the truth that you're in Christ, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ because his righteousness has now been imputed to you by virtue of his cross and his shoes for your feet, Putting, put, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You're ready. You expect this to happen. I mean, the number of Christians that I hear, oh, I, can't, I can't believe that this is happening to me. We should expect it. We should be ready. Someone wrote me uh, earlier in the week, I won't name names, and they said, you know, make sure that you put on the full armor of God, but you might want to have your wife check first thing in the morning and make sure that you're putting your big boy pants on too. For we're promised tribulation. I mean, that's an encouragement that we all need to have our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things are going to come. Are you ready? And he makes the comparison here to having, you know, shoes ready. I remember one time, Lauren, uh, we went out to the eastern shore of uh, Virginia to Shinkatink where the ponies are and all that. And I kind of knew that we were going and that we were going to do that. But for some reason, I really didn't pack any appropriate shoes to walk on the beach. And when we pulled up there and she said, you're going to wear that? Um, and this is late December, early January, and it's, it's cold uh, up there. And we're going to walk on the beach, and you can't walk barefoot. And she said, you know, you're going to wear Bass Weegians on the beach. That's the, 
In the same way are, are you, that I was trying to wear bass legions on the beach, if you're going to go for a run, you're not going to wear wingtips. What are you going to do? You're going to put on the appropriate footwear. Why? Because you're ready. You know what you're up against. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You've seen all the movies where these shields look like doors and they're kind of curved in. That's the shield that he's talking about, of hiding yourself behind. But these shields were made of wood, and so they would send flaming darts at you. But do you have a shield that can put out darts? Well, the Romans didn't, but the Christian does. I love Westerns, the older, the better. And, um, you know, I, gosh, every time I watch Lonesome Dove, I cry, and that really isn't that, all that old. But one of the things that is a common th- theme within uh, Westerns is the wagon train is moving out west, and all of a sudden, the Apaches circle the wagons, and they start shooting arrows, and the cowboys are in the wagons, and they're shooting back at the Apaches. And then one Indian takes an arrow lights it on fire, and shoots the wagon train. And then the cowboys are not just fighting the Apaches, they're fighting the Apaches and the fire. And that's what the Christian life looks like. You think you're just getting darts, you're getting flaming darts. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, those darts are still going to come, but before they get to you, the Holy Spirit blows them out. The darts are going to come. They're expecting. They're, they're expected. But the shield of faith that we have is the promise of the Holy Spirit to blow out these flaming darts. And take the helmet of salvation. Right? This is, this is our head. And I wonder somewhat if, if Paul's not referring back to what he said about learning Christ That salvation is very experiential, but it also involves the transformation and renewing of our minds, of putting on the helmet of salvation, to believe and to know that the Lord Jesus Christ has died for you. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. If I asked you, do you believe in modern medicine? Every one of you would say, yes, I believe in modern medicine. But you'd go on your way and live your life without really giving a care for modern medicine. Until when? Until you find yourself in the hospital bed, and I ask you, do you believe in modern medicine? You would say, absolutely I believe in modern medicine, and it's the only thing I believe in right now because I need it. Do you think of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way? Do you understand that you're in the hospital bed Do you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know about him, which is really important. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But do you know him? Do you know about him? It is a a belief that translates into giving ourselves totally over to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes by the Spirit's power in renewing our mind. And then finally he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only offensive weapon that we're given. Everything else is defensive. Now let's say that you go out and you're standing firm and you've got your breastplate on, you've got the right shoes on, 
you've uh, got uh, your belt on, uh, you've got your shield. I think I mentioned the helmet already. Well, you've got everything on that you're supposed to, but you have no sword. Well, you'll be deficient for the battle at hand, won't you? And the sword that Paul is talking about here is not like the brave heart, you know, sort of big iron or steel, uh, rather, uh, sword, but actually a shorter sword uh, that the Romans would, that, you know, really kind of, you know, you'd, you'd jab at. It was for quick action, much like the quick action of Jesus quoting back to the devil himself the scriptures. And so many Christians just, they have the sword, and yet they leave it sheathed. They never think to use it. They're not gun-shy or sword-shy, they're Bible-shy. But it's our weapon, the only offensive weapon that we're given in spiritual warfare and against the devil himself. Are you going to the gun range with your Bible? Are you practicing? Do you know God's word? Because when Satan does tempt you to despair or tries to lead you astray, when you're in God's word, you can say, you know, when the the devil says, hey, you don't need to obey your parents. You're your own person. Do what you want to do. Do you think... Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. When you think, do you know what? I just would like a better version of my current spouse, which is what most people think when they get divorced. I I like my wife. I like my husband just fine. I just want a better version of them. Or do you hear, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. You see what Paul's getting at here? Right, the spiritual warfare that, you know, like I, you know, this employee, you know, they really don't deserve the wage that I'm paying them. And I'm going to see what I can get away with in docking their pay rather than investing in them, rather than wondering why is it that you're not giving your all to this place, or even managing the right expectation of, hey, you know what, you might want to go do something else. Uh, Flannery O'Connor said something about like going to the Iowa's writer's workshop was to discern whether you ought to keep on writing or enroll immediately in the school of dentistry. This is what Paul is talking about here, and, and the Bible guides us in these matters. The Bible is our sole rule of authority in all matters pertaining to the Christian. But I don't want us to lose either that we're to pray at all times in the Spirit and with all prayer and supplication. I know that we're at the end here, and I'm not going to do the final greetings, but I just want to leave with this for you. that I think it could be rightfully said that this is the second weapon that we're given, even though Paul doesn't you know, maybe he would have called it the lasso, I don't know, or, you know, who knows what he would, the, the bow and arrow, I don't know what he would have called it, uh, or what God would have called it, had Paul call it. But 
praying at all times, meaning all of this has to be bathed in prayer. Are you praying for your husband or your wife? Are you praying for the members of your church, especially the ones that you don't get along with? Are you praying for your children? Are you praying for your parents? Are you praying for your coworkers? Are you praying for your employer? Are you praying for your employees? This one only comes out with much prayer, Jesus said. And not just pray about it, but pray at all times in the Spirit, meaning God himself is meeting with you in those prayers. And the Spirit is taking them into the heavenly places, and you have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. And this word supplication means you're asking for things. You know, I would caution anybody, and I, I, I hear this from people who get older and older and older, that you know what, I don't pray for anything for myself anymore. Well, Paul would say you ought to. Supplications are the petitions that we bring to God in prayer. We need to be praying for one another, we need to be praying for ourselves, and we need to be specific. And in fact, if you say, yeah, I just don't really pray for myself uh, anymore, uh, Paul is saying you're opening yourself up to some real spiritual problems if that's the case. I mean, I just was praying the other night when I was getting into bed, God, get me through COVID. And if you can't pray for, if you think I don't need to pray for myself, that's a good prayer for you to pray. Lord, get me through COVID because we all need that prayer. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. It's relationship again, isn't it? The relationship that began within God himself as a trinity that extends into our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with the Trinity, into our relationships with other Christians, into our relationships with our husbands or wives, into children and parents, and into the commercial arena. That's what all this is about. And so I, I pray uh, that God would work mightily in your life uh, to help you to see just how glorious his grace is and to understand what it means to be a Christian filled with the Spirit of God, living in this world in the context of the relationships God has given us. I have nothing else to say, for God has said it all. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we do pray that you would make us people of prayer, and that we would put on the whole armor of God, that our lives would be in you, Jesus. And Lord, that as we go up against others in the spiritual welfare warfare, I pray that we would understand that they're not the enemy, even if they're being used by the enemy. But Lord, we pray, uh, as uh, Tyndale did so many years ago, oh God, open the eyes of the king. Lord, open the eyes of those who have naively fell into the snares and traps of the devil and are in jeopardy of falling away. Lord, we pray for them, and Lord, we pray for our own blind spots where Satan has a foothold in our lives that we might be able to cast him out using the means that you've encouraged us to use here today. God, keep us safe and give, us, give ourselves wholly over to you that we might preach the word that we ought to preach. In Jesus' name, amen.